0: Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, we're finishing up this book of the Bible, and hopefully God has not finished using this book to shape and challenge our hearts. If you don't have a, a Bible, don't panic. There's a pew Bible there in the chair in front of you. It looks like this, a big black one. Um, if you turn to page 822 in the pew Bible, you'll find Jonah Chapter 4. Hear then the words of the living God from Jonah, chapter 4. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. Actually, before I even continue, let me just say what happened in chapter 3. So Jonah shared the gospel, or he he proclaimed the judgment of God to the great city of Nineveh, and they all repented. And so God decided to not destroy the city. And now here's Jonah's response. Chapter 4, verse 1. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to Yahweh the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, It's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right. He replied, I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over, and it did not grow, or and you didn't grow it. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? Father, we pray that you would burn these words deep into our soul. That um, that your word would be a light unto our feet and a, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That you would that this perfect word of Scripture would revive our souls and it would make wise the simple. So help us, we pray, to do that for your glory. Shape our hearts, challenge our hearts, convict us of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. And we pray that we would rest our souls finally in Jesus, our Savior, our Messiah, and our King. Help us now, we pray, for we desperately need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. The truth hurts, especially when you are blind to your sin and you're defensive about it. Has a friend or um, someone who loves you ever pointed out a sin in your life? And you got defensive about it, and you couldn't see it for a day, or two days, or for a week or so, and then eventually you saw it. It takes a special kind of friend to gently but firmly speak the truth to you in love. Now, God is the best. He, God is the best at this, and we see a picture of God patiently loving and guiding his prophet, his missionary, Jonah here in chapter, in Jonah chapter 4. Now, the, the reason why this is important to us is because we all have blind spots ourselves. And by definition, a blind spot is a spot in your life that you cannot see, right? You're blind to it. Other people can see it, but you yourself, you can't see it. And so we all have blind spots. So here's a question. What if we have some serious blind spots in our lives that make us look ridiculous to God and others? Some of you quietly laughed when we read Jonah 4, and he said he was angry enough to die. And you're right to laugh. It's funny. It's actually ridiculous. This is a ridiculous picture of a person who's serving God and yet has the attitude that Jonah has. It is funny. And yet, what if we have some serious blind spots like that in our lives? That when people look at us, we can't see it in ourselves. We look in the mirror, we can't see it. But other people see it in us, and we just look ridiculous before God. And before others? What if it's obvious to everyone but us? How can we see these blind spots and more effectively enjoy Christ and embody Christ to others by getting rid of them? Not really getting rid of the blind spots, we'll always have blind spots, but getting rid of those blemishes that we can't see in our blind spots those sins, those attitudes, the ridiculous ways of thinking and feeling and acting. Will our pride and blindness dominate us for the rest of our lives? Will our hearts get harder? And our eyes get darker or will we humble ourselves and be delivered because salvation belongs to the Lord? Here's the main idea this morning. The main goal, check your anger and your cares, check your anger and cares so that you care about what God cares for. I think this is the whole point of the book. Jonah 1 through 3 is all set up for chapter 4. And here's the main idea of this chapter, really the main idea of the book is check your anger and your cares so that you care for what God cares for. okay. So that you care for what God cares for. And the way we're going to check our anger and cares is by asking a series of questions. Okay, I have three questions that are really outlining the text, really four questions. I have a fourth question as a way of application. But if you see, God asks three questions in this text, right? In verse 4, he asks the question. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And then in verse 9, he asks another question. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And then in verse 11, he asks another question. Shouldn't I care? Shouldn't I care about this great city? So those are three questions we can use to really run through this passage and examine our own hearts. So the first question we're going to ask is, is it right for you to be angry? Not just Jonah, but is it right for you to be angry? You remember the story, so... Just to recap the whole book of Jonah in Jonah chapter one, God gives a word to Jonah, go to the city of Nineveh and preach against it because its sins have come up before me. Jonah instead of going five hundred miles north east, he goes two thousand five hundred miles or he heads two thousand five hundred miles west to Tarshish by way of sea, so he gets in a boat, but God sends a storm, and in sending the storm um, in sending the storm uh, God God um, gets Jonah basically off the boat. They throw him overboard. A fish swallows him up instead of letting him die as he's drowning. In, and remember, he's drowning in the sea, and he's praying as he's sinking. And as he sinks to the bottom, a fish comes and grabs him up. And then in there, Jonah prays a prayer of thanksgiving, which is what chapter 2 is. It's not a prayer of confession. It's a prayer of thanksgiving in Jonah chapter 2. And then in Jonah chapter 3, at the end of chapter 2, he spit back onto dry land. In Jonah chapter 3, he preaches against the city of Nineveh, and they all repent from the king, from the greatest to the least of them, even the animals are dressed in sackcloth and are fasting as well and moaning and groaning the fact that they don't have food. They're all mourning over their sin and God decides to not destroy the city. And then you get to chapter 4 and here Jonah is angry at God. He's greatly displeased and furious. 120,000 people just, got, just repented. I mean, we had our sister Olga and she's going to come up here again. To share in Afghanistan. Imagine if she came up here and said, you know, we're sharing in our country, sharing the gospel. And you know what? The whole city, 120,000 people came to the Lord in a day. I mean, that would be cause for celebration, right? Around the whole world. Christians around the whole world would be celebrating if that came out in the news, right? And here's Jonah. And his response is anger. It says in verse 1, he was greatly displeased and became furious. Jonah is fuming. The, the way the Hebrew talks about anger is your nose gets hot. His nose is on fire. He's basically breathing out fire in anger because they all repented. That's his response in verse 1. Jonah was angry. Now, what was he angry for? Look at verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this, this, this repenting and this relenting from the disaster, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? Isn't this why I went to Tarshish? In verse 2, isn't this why I fled to Tarshish in the first place? Some people think Jonah went to Tarshish because he was scared of the Ninevites and their brutality. That's not what Jonah says. Why did he go to Tarshish? In verse 2, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. I knew it. I knew you would forgive them. I knew that you'd be gracious and compassionate. I knew you'd soften their hearts. I just knew. Why would you send me there? If you're going to destroy them, you would have just destroyed them anyways. Why were you? S- I knew you were sending me there for that reason. Because you were going to save people. Because you were going to relent from causing disaster. And so Jonah is so angry. And what, what is he angry at? That God is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. And one who relents from sending disaster. Keep your finger here in Jonah 4 and go back to Exodus 34. This is a very important quote in the Old Testament. You need to we have to take time to turn here because this is just a text that you need to be familiar with. If there's one Old Testament passage you memorized in 2018, maybe this is the one, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says, this is God. Remember God said to Jonah, or not to Jonah, to Moses, I'm going to destroy Israel because they worshiped the a golden baby cow. So I'm going to destroy them. Moses says, no, please don't destroy them. Moses says, fine, I won't destroy them. Or God says, fine, I won't destroy them. And then... Um, He says, but I'm not going with you to the promised land. And Moses says, no, please come with us. And God says, all right, fine, I'll go with you. And then Moses says, please show me your glory. And then God says, all right, I'm going to make my glory pass before you and I will declare my name. So his glory is not going to be just a visual thing, but a declaration, a proclamation of who he is. And so here's God proclaiming his glory in verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34. You can hardly find a more important verse in the Bible. The Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, that's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining love for thousands, to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and rebellion and sin. There it is. Jonah knows the Bible. He knows that God is gracious and compassionate and he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, that God is a loving, compassionate, gracious God to sinners. God loves sinners. And Jonah knew that because God declared that. And every Israelite knew that. At least they would have known this passage. And so Jonah was angry because of who God is and because of God's glory. Jonah is angry at who God is. You get that? Jonah is angry at the character of God. Jonah is angry at God for being who he is. I wish you were a different kind of God. I wish you had different characteristics. I don't like who you are and how you act, God, because you're gracious and compassionate and you forgive sinners. I mean, this assumes Exodus 33, 18 and 19. Earlier on where, Jesus, where Moses said to, in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, 18, Moses said, please let me see your glory. And then listen to verse 19. Of Exodus 33. You guys could turn there. You're already there, right? Exodus 33:19. God said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will, I will proclaim the name Yahweh before you. And then he says this. I will be gracious to whom I will be. Gracious. And I will have compassion on whom. On who? On whom I have compassion. What is God saying there? I will choose who I will have compassion on. I'll be gracious to whoever I want to be gracious to. I'll have compassion on whoever I want to have compassion on. That's, that's who I am. You want to know who I am? I am the God who has compassion on whomever I want to have compassion on. I'm the God who has grace on whoever I want to have grace on, and it's my prerogative and my choice. And no one has the right to tell me what to do. God is God, and we are not. And just like it says in Romans 9, we put our hands over our mouths before we shake our fists at God and say, God, you owe me an explanation. God is God, and he has compassion on whomever he wants to have compassion on. And so Jonah's like, I knew that. I knew I couldn't control who you have compassion on. I wish I could control it so it could just stay on Israel and not on Nineveh. But I knew you would have compassion on the Ninevites because you have compassion on whoever you want to have compassion on. And so Jonah here is angry at God's compassion, his sovereign choosing of having compassion on the Ninevites. Now, why was he angry at that, the fact that he was compassionate towards the Ninevites? Who were the Ninevites? Do you remember from chapter 1 I told you guys about how they liked to flay skin, skin people alive, and hang their skin over the wall? The entire history of Assyria is filled with a reign of violence, terror, and torture. One, one teacher writes this, that um, they had a reign of violence and terror, torture, and killing conquered people, and they pridefully carried home parts of their enemies' leaders' bodies as souvenirs of war. The king of Nineveh would usually bring the severed head of a recently conquered king home, raise it on a pole in the midst of his royal banquet, commemorating his victory, and finally put it over the gate of Nineveh where it slowly rotted away. The opposing generals would get even worse treatment. Quote, here's another, he's quoting someone else now. The Elamite general, Donanu, was flayed alive, skinned alive, then bled like a lamb. His brother had his throat cut and his body was divided into pieces which were distributed over the country as souvenirs. It never occurred to Ashurbanipal, the Assyrian king, that he and his men were brutal. These clean-cut penalties were surgical necessities in his attempt to remove rebellions and establish discipline among the turbulent peoples from Ethiopia to Armenia and from Syria to Media, whom his predecessors had subjected to Assyrian rule. It was his obligation to maintain this legacy intact. He boasted of the peace that he established in his empire. And of the good order that prevailed in its cities. And the boast was not without truth. There seemed to be no act of cruelty which these conquerors had not employed. How do you keep peace and order? In a vast empire. You show brutality so that everyone's scared. Right? You strike fear in the heart of the oppressed people. And so these were Israel's enemies. And so Jonah is angry. Why would you forgive these people? It doesn't make sense, God. I mean, God, didn't you say in Genesis 12 to Abraham, I will bless those who what? Bless you and I will curse those who what? Curse "Curse you? Aren't these people cursing you? Aren't they cursing us, your people? They're not blessing us. Keep your word, God. Keep Genesis 12. Curse them. Destroy them. Jonah is angry. He's so angry in verse 3. I'll go back to Jonah 4, verse 3. He's so angry that he wishes that he was what? Dead. It'd be better if I was dead. I'd rather be dead right now. It's better for me to be dead than alive. And so God asks the question, this is our first question, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right? I want us to think about the word right. How do we know what's right and wrong? What's the standard for right and wrong? What God's word says maybe. How does God determine what's right? Does God have a rule book in heaven? Maybe his own principles and standards and God has to check which standards are right so that he can tell people what's right and wrong? Does God have a final book that he submits to? No. The answer is that there is no standard. There. If you put a standard of right outside of God, then, it becomes, then it's above God, right? If God has to submit to a standard of right that's outside of himself, then he is submitted to it now. He is no longer God over it. So God, So there, the answer is there's either a standard outside of God, which he can't be because that would be above God, or God himself is the standard. Whatever God wants, whatever God says, whatever his character is, that itself is the standard. And that's the answer. The standard of right is God's character, God's glory, God's desires, God's personality, God's wishes, God's will, God's heart. That is the standard, God himself. Another way to say it is God's glory is the standard. So John Piper would define glory or righteousness as upholding in proper proportion whatever is infinitely valuable namely God himself. So what is right? When you say what what's the right action to do what's the wrong action to do? Here's the ultimate answer. What makes something right and what makes something wrong? It is right if it upholds the glory of God in proper proportion to which he made it. Whatever the thing is. And if you do not uphold the glory of God, if you attack the glory of God, or if you hold things disproportionately, if I value my wife, should I value my wife above all women? Yes, that's right to do. Should I value my wife above God? No, no that would be sinful. That would not be quote unquote right. That would be holding her disproportionate to what to, to God's glory and to what God has created her to be in my life. So the standard of right is God Himself. So God is central. God is ultimate. And it all comes from God. So, is it right for Jonah to be angry? Or another way to ask the question is, is Jonah angry for the glory of God? Is Jonah angry because he's upholding the glory of God? And he's mad that God's glory is being diminished. Is that why Jonah's angry? No. No. That's not why Jonah's angry. He's not angry because of that. But you might say, well, I am angry because of that, Jonah might say, because I care about God cursing those who cursed Abraham. And doesn't Jonah, I mean, God, don't you say... Remember the end of Exodus 34? I didn't read it, but let me read read it to you now. Exodus 34, verse 7 says, Forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. This is who God is, but I didn't finish the verse. It says this, But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. In other words, Jonah might be saying, Actually, I am upholding the glory of God because, God, you said that you don't clear the guilty. God, you're not an unjust God. You're not an unrighteous God. You're not an unfair God. If somebody murders somebody, if someone brutally attacks somebody, if somebody rapes somebody or is violent towards them, they deserve justice. God, don't you care about justice? Aren't you a just and righteous God? The problem for Jonah is God is both gracious in forgiving sinners and he's righteous in punishing sinners. And he's both. That's what it says, right? In Exodus 34. God is gracious to forgive sinners and God is righteous to punish sinners and never clear a sinner. So how do you put those two things together? How can you never clear a sinner and yet forgive a sinner? That's the riddle of the Old Testament, right? How do you forgive King David for adultery and murder and yet say, I'm not going to clear King David for adultery and murder? How do you do it? The answer is Romans 3.25, where it says that God put Jesus Christ, God passed over the sins previously committed and put his son forward as a propitiation or as a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. In other words, God can be gracious by punishing every single sin of every single sinner who will ever believe on who? On Jesus Christ. So God can punish every Ninevite for every stealing, every flaying, every brutality, every murder, every rape, every stealing, every kidnapping, every single sin they've ever committed. If they repented and entered into a covenant relationship with God, God would have looked over their sins and passed over their sins and forgiven them of their sins and relented from disaster and passed over them and then put it on who? On Jesus on the cross. And so as Christ hangs on the cross... Jesus is being punished for the sins of every single sinner who would ever believe. Right there, he passed over their sins and punishes it on Christ. Now, if they're not in Christ, where does he punish their sins? Where do they go after they die? In hell forever to burn in the lake of fire. Either way, the wages of sin is death. Separation from God. Either death in Christ, you unite yourself to Christ... And he'll pass over your sins and not clear you at the same time because you're united to Christ. Was Christ cleared or was he punished on the cross? He was punished. Now, Christ never sinned, but he was not cleared on the cross. He should have. I mean, he wasn't sinful. But because he was united to us, God did not clear the guilty. There is not one sin in this universe that will not be punished. Every single sin will be punished. Either on Christ, on the cross, it was already punished and it was finished. Or it will be punished in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. But God can be gracious to any sinner he wants to, and he still at the same time does not clear the guilty. That's the gospel, the gospel of the cross. And so if you're not a Christian, I invite you to trust in Jesus Christ this morning. Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead so that if you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus, even this morning, he will save you. He will forgive you. He'll wipe away every trespass and iniquity and any guilt and shame that you feel, he will take it. Because Christ already took it. So trust in him in turn. So why was Jonah angry? Because he was angry at who? He was angry at God. He was self-centered. Jonah was self-centered. That's why he was angry, because of self-centeredness. Individually, it pained Jonah to see a people group that he considered evil, to see them forgiven and not judged. Now these people may have hurt his family and friends. There's a story of Elisha in 1 Kings 8 where he's looking at this king that he anointed. It's this awkward story in 1 Kings 8 where Elisha anoints a, a man who's not even a, who's not royalty the next king of Syria. And Elisha starts staring at him and the man is so sheepish and he knows he's in the presence of this great prophet of Israel and Elisha just keeps staring at him and it gets awkward. It's in 1 Kings 8. And he says, "My lord, why are you staring at me?" And then Elisha just starts crying. And the man is like, "What is going on here?" And then uh, this is what Elisha says in Second Kings eight twelve, because I know the evil you will do to the people of Israel. You will set their fortresses on fire. You will kill their young men with the sword. You will dash children to pieces. You will rip open their pregnant women. There's a prophet of Israel seeing and anointing the next king of Syria, who's going to end up taking that power and then going to Israel, and exercising that military power. It's so Jonah was angry because God was forgiving people who would take their pregnant women and cut open their wombs while they're pregnant and take their kids, their babies, and dash them against the rocks to kill them. That's why Jonah was angry because God would forgive them and Jonah just couldn't emotionally handle it. He couldn't, he couldn't handle it. So we need to be sympathetic with Jonah. We've all been hurt by people, right? For us to be able to have a hard time forgiving people we could sympathize with Jonah. In some ways, we are like Jonah, aren't we? But Jonah wasn't only selfish and self-centered individually. He was also self-centered in a corporate way. If, if Nineveh repents while Israel's not repenting, might God remove Israel and place her enemy in a more prominent position? Didn't Jesus say something like that when he said the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to others, to the Pharisees? Jonah was saying, wait, they're repenting over here and my people aren't repenting. So Jonah has a sense here of nationalism where he cares more about his people group than the Ninevites. So Jonas was a nationalist in a sinful and idolatrous sense. He was patriotic to a sinful fault. He was ethnocentric. That's a better term than racist. He was ethnocentric. He saw his ethnic people group as superior or as more deserving of grace. Deserving of grace is if you could put those two thoughts together, right? Grace is not something you deserve. More, his people are more deserving of grace than the Ninevites. This self-centeredness and group-centeredness made Jonah angry at the glory of God himself. So, so, much, so, much, so much pain that he could actually aim his pain at God's glory and say, God, I hate your glory. I hate your grace. I hate your compassion. I am furious with it. Jonah wants the law for the Ninevites. He wants law for them and grace for his people. Justice for them, grace for me. Justice for those people, grace for my people. And Jonah wasn't the first one to be angry like this. Do you remember the story in Luke chapter 4? You don't have to turn there, but in Luke four twenty-one to 29, Jesus comes back to his hometown of Nazareth, and everyone is so excited to see him because he's become popular since the last time they saw him. And Jesus says to them, he reads a prophecy from Isaiah, and he says, today this prophecy has been fulfilled. And then it says, they were all speaking well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? And then Jesus says to them, they're all happy, they're all excited, Jesus is there. His words are so powerful and so touching. And then Jesus says, no doubt you guys are going to say to me, doctor, heal yourself. What you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. And then Jesus also said, quote, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel, in Elijah's days, a lot of widows who need help. When the sky was shut up for three years and six months, while the great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of those Israelite widows but to a a widow at Zarephath in Sidon, a Gentile widow. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian, the general of the army that was punishing and oppressing Israel. He was the only one who was healed of his leprosy in Elisha's time. And then here, here, what's the reaction of the Jews here? the people of God in verse 28. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town and brought him to the edge of a hill that their own town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. They wanted to kill Jesus. They were just impressed with his words. Oh, a prophet, praise God. And they start saying, yeah, and God only cleansed these Gentiles, even though all these Jewish Israelites were needy and God didn't heal any of them in those times. And then they were ticked. They wanted to kill him. Another way of saying, they hated his glory. They hated his compassion. How dare you have compassion on people, on other ethnic people groups and not ours? How dare you say that God is gracious to them and not others? So we ask the question again, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? Are you you competing for people or against people? Are we contending for people or are we contending against people? Was Jonah contending for people or is he contending against people? At this point, if Jonah were a member of this church, this old covenant, but if this is a new covenant, if Jonah was a member of our church, what would we do to such a member? Now, our church is still in the process of getting healthy, but if our church was a healthy church, if we had a church member here who shared the gospel and then all these people got saved and then they were so mad at God and they were angry... And they hated God and they were telling us, I hate what God did. I hate that God has compassionate to those people. I hate that we're making disciples here in Bellflower or that we're going to send missionaries or give money for missions across the world. I hate that. That's a waste of money. What are we doing? What about building up our church, our people, our building, our facilities, making us more comfortable? If we had a member who was like Jonah, that explicit in saying, I hate missions and I hate making disciples and I hate God's compassion on the lost what would we do as a church? Wouldn't we rebuke the person? Wouldn't we correct them? Wouldn't they enter the discipline process? Take one or two, right? Then take it to the church. I mean, and and it's not because we're angry back at them lest we become like Jonah, right? You could start to become self-righteous towards them and be like, off with his head. Well, you're just like Jonah now to, to the church member, right? So we don't want to go that far. Yet at the same time, Yet at the same time, we need to realize that in our church, what, what is church membership? I mean, this is what we talk about with excommunication. The process of discipline is, you know, first one or two, then, or first one, then two or three, then the church, and then excommunication. But all four of those steps are not to say, yay, we did excommunication. It's to try to win the sinner back, right? Yeah. It's trying to restore the brother. It's trying to restore the brother. And it's a statement from the church. If one of our members was publicly saying that God should not be saving other people, and that we should not be making, having the Great Commission towards this particular people group, if they were publicly saying that, it would be the responsibility of this church to publicly say that we do not recognize this person as a Christian. Not saying they're not a Christian. Excommunication is not saying we can read their heart. It's saying from what they're saying in their unrepentant heart, we can't affirm their Christianity anymore. We have to take back that public affirmation. We would have done that to Jonah here. In this situation, if it went to that point, hopefully he would repent after step one, right? Or step two or step three, or even after step four, if he would repent after excommunication, he'd come right back into the flock if he repented. But at this point, Jonah is sinfully and rebelliously angry at God himself. How should Jonah have responded if, if 120,000 people get saved? What does God do over one sinner who repents in Luke 15? What does heaven do? Rejoice. They throw a party, right? They rejoice in heaven over one sinner who repents. How about 120,000 What kind of party would be going on in heaven? That's what Jonah should have been doing. He should have been angry at his own heart, at his own self-centered, group-centered, ethnic-centered heart. So is it always wrong to be angry? Was Jesus ever angry? He was, right? But what was Jesus angry about? When, When was Jesus angry? When he did what? When he cleansed the temple. Do you remember why he cleansed the temple? In Mark 11, 15 to 17, it says this. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and began. Jesus began to overthrow those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and would not permit them to carry any goods through the temple. He was teaching them. Now listen to this. Why is Jesus angry? He was teaching them, and he's going to quote scripture here. It is it not written, my house will be called a what? House of prayer. what does it say after that? Oh, you might not remember. Wait, hold on. My house. This is the Mark one. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of thieves. For all nations? Why is that in there? What do you mean all ethnic people groups? I thought this temple is for Israel. It's for all nations. What does that mean? One New Testament scholar says this. Part of Jesus' charge against his fellow Jews was that Israel as a whole had used the temple's vocation to be, or their vocation, to be a light to the world as an excuse for a hard, narrow, nationalist piety and politics in which the rest of the world was to be not enlightened but condemned. Another New Testament scholar says about, about this uh, Mark, Mark 11, he says, The reference to the house of prayer for all nations comes from Isaiah 56.7. Isaiah 56 speaks of the extension of God's salvation to people who were formerly excluded from it. Foreigners, eunuchs, exiles, and Gentiles. The house of God, the temple, was to be a light to the nations through Israel. And that's what made Jesus angry. Jonah is angry because God is extending his grace to the nations. Jesus is angry because Israel was not extending God's grace to the nations. The exact opposite reason why Jonah was angry. He was angry because they were limiting the grace of God from the nations. It is right to be angry sometimes. It just depends what you're angry about. So brothers and sisters, we must have a heart for the nation. So we pray, we give. We're giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. We give all year long through the cooperative program. Give to missionaries directly. Some of our members give directly to missionaries too. Some go, some of us need to go. Some of our members need to go to the mission field and we need to be a sending church. But we need to ask this question as well. Do you care about the neighbors in our community who are ethnically distinct from you? Asian American, do you think of someone, do you you think of the non-Asian Americans with care hispanic american do you think of non-hispanic americans or african-american or anglo-american do you think of those who are distinct from you with care do you care about them do you care that they know god and fellowship deeply with you and that they change our church as they join our church do you know that every member who joins our church changes our church every single member because who's the church we are right you take taking a new member guess what they're doing Changing the church because our our makeup of the church keeps changing as more people come And they will be different than you and they'll be different than me But do we care about them? Do we care about them to make them family to treat them like family because they are family? Or will we say hey, you're in our house and you're a guest in this house. You need to obey my Ethnic cultural rules of this house Christian what makes you angry? Are you angry at god or are you angry with god? There's a difference. Jesus was angry with God. Jonah was angry at God. Brothers and sisters, repent for sinful, self-centered, tribe-centered anger. Let us embrace God's glory as our highest value to guide and calibrate our anger. Listen to this. All unrighteous anger is anger aimed at the glory and heart of God. Or let me say it a a simpler way. Deep down, all sinful anger is anger at God himself. All of it. I'm not angry at God. I'm just angry at my family member. I'm not angry at God. I'm just sinfully angry at my neighbor. I'm not angry at God. I'm just angry at my fellow church member. If it's a sinful anger, your anger at its core is anger at God and his glory. And so we must repent. And brothers and sisters, let's invite other church members, invite your church family to, to speak into your life. When a brother or sister rebukes you for sin and questions you on what you get passionate and angry about, accept that, receive that, welcome that. If you're not a Christian, I have a question for you. Is what you're angry about really the main issue? I hope if you're not a Christian, you would think about the possibility that your anger is actually deep down anger at God himself. So check your anger and cares so that you care for what God cares for. That's the first question, and by far the longest one. These next two are short, and the last one's even shorter, but... Um, The next one, is it right for you to be angry about your troubles? So the first question, is it right for you to be angry? Second question, is it right for you to be angry about your troubles? Verses five through nine. So what does God do in verse five? He makes, uh, Jonah makes a shade. So Jonah goes east of the city. He makes shade there. He makes um, a shelter there. He doesn't make shade. He makes a shelter, but his shelter might have a hole on the top or some way that he's not really being blocked from the sun. And so God, what does God do? He causes a plant to miraculously grow through the night and give nice shade over Jonah's shelter as Jonah sits looking over the city, waiting for it to be destroyed, okay? So there's the the shade or there's the plant and it gets there and Jonah finally, in verses five and six, look at verse six. So Jonah's sitting there waiting to see what's gonna happen in the city, verse six. Then the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head and to rescue him from his trouble. And then listen to this. Jonah was what? In verse six, Jonah was what? Greatly pleased with the plan. Here is Jonah's first smile in the whole book. Finally, Jonah smiles. Finally, he's happy. Finally, he's pleased. And why is he pleased? Why is he smiling? Why is he happy? Because he has shade. Yes, shade. Finally, finally, I catch a break. Some shade while I wait for the city to be destroyed. Now, why is Jonah so happy about shade? Well, one, it's no fun sitting out in the sun getting baked, right? That's just not a fun thing. But I would maybe, I mean, to give Jonah a little bit more credit, perhaps, or to be a little bit nicer to him, maybe he saw the, the shade as a, as a sign that God was going to destroy the city. Maybe Jonah was sitting there saying, maybe the repentance isn't real. Maybe it's a temporary repentance and just wait a few days. They're going to go back to their old ways, right? A dog, As a dog returns to its vomit, so does a fool to his folly. Doesn't the Proverbs say that? So they're sinners. Maybe they're not really repenting. Maybe they're just kind of, they were just kind of caught up in the emotion of it all. And they're going to go back to their sins. And then God is going to rain fire down on the city like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he gets to the side. He gets up on a hill on the east. And he looks down on the city and he's waiting for the place to cook. And then God provides shade. If God's providing shade and God knows why he's sitting there, what does he take that as a sign of? The, movie, the movie's about to start, right? The lights just went out. This is happening. I mean, God miraculously just put a plant over me. Now there's shade. That means he's about to do this. And he's giving me a front row seat. And so Jonah is happy for shade, but he might also be happy because this is a sign that God's about to destroy the city. But what happens instead as we read on in verse 7? So Jonah's greatly pleased. But then verse 7, when the next day came, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. So what happens? God sends a worm to eat the plant. So this is all miraculous, right? A fish swallowing a man for three days. That's a miracle, right? Okay, now a plant grows up overnight. That's a miracle. 120,000 people repent at one message. That's a miracle. A worm can eat or start eating a plant, and then by... It, within a few hours from dawn until the, hot, the hotness of the sun at its, at its most hottest point, uh, the, the whole plant could wither in a few hours by a worm. And then wind comes. All of this is by God's purposeful care. Now, why does God do this? In verse six, Go back to verse 6 again. God appointed a plant to grow up over Jonah to do what? To provide shade for his head to do what? To rescue him from his what? His trouble, does anyone have another translation? Grief, Grief. anyone else? Discomfort, anyone else? Okay, this word is very general. This is the Hebrew word ra'ah, which can mean trouble, discomfort, grief. It can also mean disaster. It could also mean evil. So God is giving this plant to rescue Jonah from his trouble of the heat, but it could also be from Jonah's evil, his evil attitude. So in other words, the plant is not just here to give Jonah shade. The plant is actually here to give Jonah shade and then to have the shade taken away. That's God's purpose. God, did, did God just change his mind later and back, like, you know, what, I'm going to take the shade back. Or did God have that plan the whole time? He had a plan the whole time, right? Why? Jonah care or God cares about Jonah. He wants Jonah to be rescued, not from sun, not from the heat of the sun, but from the heat of his nose. Remember the, the heat of his nose being his anger? He wants him to be rescued from his own sinful attitude. And so he appoints the plant, and he appoints the worm, and he appoints the wind, and he appoints the sun to beat down on his head until Jonah says at the end of verse 8, I just want to die. It's better for me to die than to live. And then God asks the question again, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Jonah's uncomfortable. Jonah realizes the destruction might not be coming after all. And Jonah begins to care about the plant. So Jonah is angry over his troubles, over the sun, over his discomfort. Have you ever been angry at God over discomfort? Over trouble in your life? Over a trial in your life? What troubles in your life have you been angry over? It can be serious. Serious pain and serious trouble. It can also be silly. I have been angry over many silly things in my marriage over the last 12 plus years. And you know one of them, I say regularly, some of you don't know, but um, one that I always go back to is um, the toothpaste tube thing that I used to get angry about in the first two or three years of our marriage where Francis would squeeze the toothpaste from the middle instead of the bottom of the toothpaste and be like, how dare you? And I'd be angry about it. I'd be angry about toothpaste, a tube of toothpaste, and I'd be angry at the discomfort For my troubles. (laughs) And Jonah's angry here over shade. There are bigger issues than shade, right? There are bigger issues than plants. There are bigger issues than a toothpaste tube that's perfectly squeezed out from the bottom to the top. There are bigger issues in life. And yet we get angry over our little troubles. And we lose perspective, don't we? We lose perspective. Getting angry over small things while losing the bigger Picture, Jonah is so angry that the plant is dying that he thinks it's better for him to die. Just kill me now. If you're going to have sun on my head, just kill me. This heat is too hot. You know, this is, I, I've had it here. This is how sin blinds our eyes and, and hardens our heart, right? We start to really become ridiculous. We start to get angry over silly things. John Lee helped me with this one, so I'll give him credit for it. Jonah is angry enough in his mind to say, it is better for me to die than to live because he's angry about his plant. But Jesus also said, it's better for me to die than live for a different reason, right? Not because he was angry over his petty plant. It's better for me to die than to live so that I could save my people from their sins. Let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. Three times, please, please, please. God says No. And Jesus agrees with the Father, it is better for me to die than to live, so that my people can live. Christian, what is your trouble that you're so angry about? What is the difficulty in your life today that, feel, that you feel gives you a license to be frustrated at God and others? Church family, we need to build each other up in this church, which means we need to move beyond mere surface corrections and conversations to what we really treasure. What are we really angry at? really helping each other examine our hearts as a church family, as fellow members of a church. Do you know that God uses your family and friends who disagree with you and differ from you as a way of exposing and keeping you from idols? Why why are people different than me? Why do I disagree with so many people? Why why, Why doesn't everyone in my church family just see things the way I see it? Why don't my neighbors see things the way I see it? Why doesn't my family see things the way I see it? God gives them to you as gifts to deliver you from your trouble, to deliver you from your evil, to deliver you from self-centeredness, that's why they're different than you. That's why they disagree with you, because God cares about your heart as well. So check your anger and your cares, and so that you care what God cares for. The third question, last two verses here. So Lord said, so Jonah says, "I'm angry." So in verse nine, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? What's God's? What's Jonah's response? Yes, it's right. I'm angry enough to die. <laughs> Jonah is ridiculous here and verse 10 so the lord said you cared about the plant which you did not labor over and it did not grow it appeared in a night and perished in a night but may i not care for the great city of nineveh which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left as well as many animals so here's the third question is it right for you or is it right for god to care about what he cares about yes or no is it right for god to care about what he cares about yeah. yes it's right for god now does jonah think it's right for god to care about what he cares about No, and when we're angry, when we're sinfully angry, we agree with Jonah and not God. That God is not right to care about what he cares about. Because if he really cared, he would take away my problem. He would take away that person who's causing me pain. But God, you don't care. At least not the way you should. Jonah, so look at verse 10. This is interesting. What does Jonah care about in verse 10? What does Jonah have compassion on in verse 10? The what? The plant. Jonah has built a... Emotional connection to the plant. Maybe he named the plant. Precious. My precious. Right? Precious plant. And as the worm starts attacking, no, don't attack my precious. Right? But is it a, I mean, maybe, maybe the worm attacked when Jonah was sleeping. Maybe it was a really strong worm that Jonah couldn't kill. <laughs> Imagine that, trying to kill a supernatural worm. Um, but Jonah here is like, no, my precious plant. Morning, oh, my plant. I miss you, precious. Caring about his plant. And God says, really? You really have compassion and care for your precious plant. And you're mad at me for caring about 120,000 image bearers. As well as many animals. You care about, that plant was, you didn't even know the plant, the plant didn't even exist the day before. It came up in the night. I gave it to you. You didn't work for it. The plant was a day old and you have this strong emotional connection to a plant? What is wrong with you? Again, ridiculous. Jonah has a picture of us, right? Toothpaste too? Really? You care about that? Rather than your wife who you're actually one with? It just doesn't make any sense. Here's a short, there's a side application. Learn to take yourself less seriously and take God more seriously. In other words, learn to laugh at yourself and let other people laugh at you too. <laughs> Join them in laughing at yourself. That's, that's good for your soul. And that, that's part of the picture here. But the, the, the point here is we can easily start to idolize other things and care for the creature more than the, the creator. creator. That's Romans 1, right? Exchange the glory of God for the glory of created things and worship created things rather than the creator. So question for you, brothers and sisters, what do you really care about? What makes you so angry that sometimes it moves from righteous anger to unrighteous, sinful anger? It could be your family. That could become an idol. Relationships, possessions, your money, your job, your school, your power, your respect, your politics, your nationalism or patriotism, your philosophies, your sexual idols, your theological idols. It can be silly things as well. But the question is, what do you care about? What is your plant that you care about so much and you care about disproportionately to what God cares about? People are more important than things, right? You you instinctively know that, right? If there's a flood or the fires, the California fires, what are people trying to save most of all? People, right? If you have a bunch of stuff and you got people stuck in rooms, you're not trying to save the stuff. You don't care about that. Let that burn, right? trying to save people first everyone knows that even non-christians you instinctively know in a flood in a fire in natural disaster people are the most important thing they're more important than 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 plants right even if you have a favorite plant in your house my wife loves plants do you have a favorite one i don't know if you have a favorite one i should know that it's bad for me as a husband but i mean yeah like if if there's a fire you're not going to go save your favorite plant when your kid is in one of the rooms right even if it's a guest, even if it's a friend, even if it's a neighbor you're like, well, it's not my kid. Well, it's still if it's a person, you're gonna care about that more than your favorite plants. And here Jonah is caring about plants. Shouldn't God care more about people than plants? Shouldn't God care about other humans from other ethnic people groups rather than just the Israelites? Isn't that what we're saying to Jonah? Amen. Shouldn't He care more than just evangelical Christians or Southern Baptist Christians? Shouldn't God care about more and shouldn't we care about them too? Amen. Christian Praise God that God cares about you, right? And he cares about others through you. I mean, think about it. Jonah 4, this chapter is not about God's care for Nineveh. That's chapter 3. Chapter 4 is God's care about who? Jonah. It's about God's care for Jonah. God cares about Jonah. He doesn't kill Jonah. He doesn't kill Jonah. Instead, he actually loves Jonah. I mean, just think about this for a second, okay? Where does Jonah go in verse 5? Where does he go? He leaves the city and he goes where? East of the city. He goes east of the city. Now, does that ring a bell to any of you? Any of you, when you hear east of the city, east, do you think of anything? Okay, there's one. What else? What else? That's one. Anything else? I'll give you three. There's more. There's, here's three. When Lot and Abraham split up, Lot goes east towards Sodom and Gomorrah. When Abraham has Isaac and Ishmael and then he marries another woman after Sarah dies and has more kids, he sends them away from the land, the promised land, east of the promised land, away from the place of God's promise and presence. When Adam and Eve eat the fruit, where does God send them? East of Eden, and he places a whirling sword and an angel on the east gate of Eden so that they do not enter back in. To go east is to go away from the blessing and presence and goodness and fellowship of God. That's where you go when you go east. And so Jonah, in his anger, goes east of the city, outside the city. And what should God do to him? What does he deserve? He deserves to be destroyed. He deserves to be damned and condemned for his sins. And yet this whole chapter is about God caring for Jonah. Why? Because Jesus went east of the city. Hebrews 13, Jesus went outside the gate to suffer outside the city gate for our sins. Jesus was condemned outside the city. He was destroyed. God rained down his wrath on Christ outside the place of God's blessing, the city of God, where God's presence and communion is. And he put Jesus on that cross to bear our sins so that he can be compassionate to Jonah and to you and to me, even though we deserve eternal death. Praise God that he cares. So is it right for God to care about Nineveh and for God to care about what he cares about? Yes, let me just close with the last question. Fourth question, last question. Is it, um, will will you receive God's care to the point where you start to care about what God cares about? That's the whole point of the book. Will you receive God's care for you because you're a sinner who deserves damnation and yet God cares for you? He's compassionate towards you. Will you receive that care and compassion to the point where it changes your heart so that you care about others who are different than you the way God cares about them through you? Will you go with God or will you pout? Praise God, I think Jonah actually got it. We don't know who wrote the book of Jonah. Maybe Jonah wrote it. But, but even if Jonah didn't write it, where did, where did the writer get all this information? How did he know what Jonah prayed in the belly of the fish? How did he know about this? Con- who else is outside the gate having this conversation between God and with this plant and the worm? Who else is out there? Anyone else besides God and Jonah? No, right? So whoever told the story, either one, now this is possible, God supernaturally revealed it to someone who never knew Jonah. That's possible. Or more likely, I think, Jonah is actually using this book as a confession of his sins. Because he knows that it's not about his strength that strengthens other people. It's about his weakness and his sin. Just like Peter. Peter is the one who is behind the Gospel of Mark. And when we read the Gospel of Mark, Peter is painted in such an ugly light, right? A foolish, ridiculous, sinful light. Because Peter knows he's not the hero. Jesus is. And Jonah knows he's not the hero. God is. And so I think Jonah got it by the end of it. I mean, if Jonah gave this information to people to write down, isn't Jonah caring for us today? And we're non-Israelites, right? Praise God. Jonah received the compassion of God, I think, and extended it now to others. Now, even if you think, well, PJ, I don't agree with you on that. That's okay. Even if you don't, the point is still the application, right? Jonah didn't do it, and you should. But I think Jonah did it. And God was compassionate to him, and God will be compassionate to us too. So, brothers and sisters, I'll close with this. Check your anger and your cares so that you care about what God cares for. Turn from your, single sin, your sinful anger. Turn from your cares of other things more than God and turn to God's compassion for you and then through you to others. If you don't turn, if you don't wake up, your heart will grow harder, your eyes will get darker, and you will rob yourself of the joy of helping others connect with God. But if you repent, brothers and sisters, if you humble yourself and say, God, show me my sin, show me my sinful anger and help me to receive your compassion and then extend it to the nations in giving and sending and going and help me to extend to my neighbors in giving and sending and going, then God will will change and transform your heart. God will increase your love for him and for your neighbors and for the nations and you will see the world the way God does. Let's pray. Father, Take this word and hide it in our hearts that we would not sin against you. And when we do, help us to run to you because you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin.